The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Hey guys, this is my friend Zach. Hey. Hello. Whoa, is that the laser? It's bitching. <laughs> Yes, in 1917, when Albert Einstein established the theoretic foundation for the laser in his paper Sir Quentin Terry der Strahlung, his fondest hope was that the resultant device be bitchin'. Well, mission accomplished. Let me explain what we're doing here. Uh, in 1969, the astronauts on Apollo 11 positioned reflectors on the surface of the moon, and we're going to shoot a laser off one of them and let the light bounce back into this photomultiplier. Oh, that's very cool. One question. How can you be sure it won't blow up? The laser? The moon. See, now this is a man for Penny. Uh, uh, that's a great question, Zach. No, it's not. Sheldon, play nice. Well, it's not a great question. How could somebody possibly think we're going to blow up the moon? <laughs> That's a great question. Don't worry about the moon. We, we set our laser to stun. Smart. That device there will measure the photons that return and let us see it on this computer. Raj, get them some glasses. Cool, it's going to be in 3D. <laughs> Preparing to fire laser at the moon. Make it so. There it is. There's the spike. 2.5 seconds for the light to return. That's the moon. We hit the moon. <laughs> That's your big experiment? I'll have a line on the screen? Yeah, but uh, think about what this represents. The fact that we can do this is the only way of definitively proving that there are man-made objects on the moon, put there by a member of a species that only 60 years before had just invented the airplane. What species is that? <laughs> I was wrong. Penny can do better. Okay, guys, thank you. It's been fun. Yeah, thanks. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 16, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 Radio Western, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be took 2.5 seconds for a laser beam to travel from the Earth to the Moon and return. The time it would take for the same laser to reach Pluto and return, if that were possible, is more along the 8-hour mark, if my understanding is correct, and that's at the speed of light, some 3 billion miles or 5 billion kilometers away. In the second half of our program today, we'll be talking about the speed of light and a whole host of theories associated with it, from science to science fiction, from space-time to the Big Bang Theory. Uh, the theory, not the show, though we'll be featuring both of those today as well, and some of my own musings on the epistemology of these theories. Now, I don't intend to cover in any detail the flyby of the dwarf planet Pluto by the spaceship New Horizons, because I actually plan to do that on a future broadcast after scientists have had a chance to assimilate and collect all of the data. 
again, my understanding is that it'll take about 12 to 16 months at least for the New Horizons to just transmit all of the images that is captured of Pluto during its brief one-day flyby. Uh, not that I'm going to plan to wait that long to discuss it. could be earlier than that. could be very early, in fact. The New Horizons mission is certainly worthy of our praise and our discussion, but I'm going to reserve that for another day, when I'll probably be taking another look at another popular planet of the day, and that would be Mars. Those are the two planets that seem to have everyone's attention today. But today we'll be looking at the larger picture of space, space-time, and yes, even the implications of time travel from a purely fictional and sci-fi fantasy standpoint as we consider an essay I discovered in the National Post this past May called The Moral of the Story on the Ethics and Science Fiction of Preventative Time Travel. Apparently they conducted a survey on this imaginary topic and found that most people would go back in time and choose to do this to kill Hitler so they could prevent World War II and the Holocaust. But I would say that even if that was possible, and, it, it, you know, it's not very possible, it's logical to conclude that you'd still not be able to change history and uh, time travel or not. But more of that later. Before we get into our very different topic for the first half of the show, a reminder, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Now, for the first half of the show, a very different and more serious topic, and that's the continuing saga of the Bill Cosby drama. I first discussed this controversy back in late November of 2014, and uh, that was show number 378. We discussed it again in January 8th, but that was the day Bill Cosby was in London, Ontario, performing. That's show 382, show 383, 384, 389. And the reason I mention these is that I covered so much material on Bill Cosby in the past already, I don't want to repeat that. So during the course of these earlier broadcasts, and perhaps the odd one I neglected to mention, it appears that we've accumulated no less than three to four full hours of research and commentary on the Cosby controversy alone. So for those of you hearing about my own personal take on the Cosby issue for the first time, I want to make it clear that everything I'm saying in terms of the source of my conclusions has come from the numerous complainants against Cosby themselves and not from any rebuttals from the Cosby camp or any such thing, which I made clear in all the previous broadcasts as well. And I continue to this day to believe that Bill Cosby is being done an unconscionable injustice. And given what I've seen thus far and dug up, I just can't objectively arrive at any other conclusion. Now, my opinion on this and other related aspects hasn't changed and, in fact, has probably been strengthened by what really happened in, real, in, in the recent weeks in the news coverage of the Cosby lawsuit that's currently going on in Philadelphia. But of course, I uh, simply cannot again repetitively detail all of the things that the popular media is not telling us and continues not to tell us, even though nothing's changed since the alleged events and the reports were originally made public. So for those of you who may find my arguments today to be a little off the wall relative to what you've been hearing in the news, all I can assure you of is that my conclusions have all been drawn from the alleged themselves and we detailed. More accounts than I care to recall on the many shows just mentioned. I think the number of complainants got up into the 30s. I think we were at 33 to 35 last time. And I went through many of them in detail. And boy, there's a story behind the story behind the story. And it's just not as simple as what we've been hearing in the, uh, on the radio. Now, you may have recalled in recent weeks 
all about the new revelation, the new revelation they call it, um, about Cosby that has surfaced. Though it was really no such thing, except with regards to its source, a court document that I think should have been left closed. And that revelation, namely that Cosby said yes to the court question, asking him if he bought quaaludes for the purpose of providing them for women he hoped to have sex with. And I'll be getting to that revolution very sh uh, re revelation very shortly. But clearly, it has convinced a lot of people that Cosby is guilty. Heard Roger Carancy uh, speaking on the roundtable uh, on the Pulse with Devin Peacock over on AM 980 the other day, and he just said, Bill Cosby has all but admitted that he is a rapist. Well, my jaw just about dropped. I'm going, what, because he said he bought quaaludes? That would be like saying, well, I bought alcohol for, for, for my date, and that, that makes you a rapist right off the bat, and I'll explain that later. But in terms of the, the known facts and allegations from many other sources, none of this is really anything new in terms of the facts known. On some of our previous broadcasts, I recounted undisputed facts about quaaludes being the popular thing in parties. This is going back, remember, going back to the 70s and 80s and perhaps even before, uh, at private occasions. Quaaludes were, in some respects at that time, not so unlike alcohol and many of the other popular drugs of the day. What is a new revelation is how the law was used and abused to embarrass Cosby, get this, for his, for his conservative political viewpoints. And if there's any real story to be told, I think it's this one, and that's where I'm going to be going with the major story. But first, we need a quick summary of the key points to keep aware of in this controversy. No time for details, sorry, but if you want the details, just check out those show broadcasts that I mentioned. And some of this comes from those shows because that's where we found some of the summaries. Now, nothing's changed. Every, all the women who've, who've, who've put complaints forward continue to fit the pattern that we've observed with every alleger um, that we discussed over previous broadcasts. Now, of course, um, the target is Bill Cosby even in a couple cases where he wasn't directly involved. The complainants, the vast majority, you know, almost all, former young models, actresses, looking for a career in their field, but being disappointed about their career in some way that they blame on Bill Cosby. Again, this is from their own words. All our, all our attention seekers and many of their allegations were printed in the tabloids and, and were accompanied with their modeling photos and their, their, their own public careers. Now, of course, the allegations are unsupportable in a court of law, either due to lack of credibility evidence and or the statute of limitations. Now here I have to warn you, there's a big red herring in this. It has to be pointed out that the statute of limitations argument is a red herring. While it is true that all of the allegations have long since passed various statute of limitations laws, that does not mean that the allegations would have had any merit, even if it was laid at the time, even if they were laid at the time of the allegation or during the years prior to the statute of limitation deadlines. Many of them were, and they were just, you know, the police said, forget it. Uh, you know, being past the statute of limitation is almost a requirement to have been included on the list of Cosby alleges. The allegations, of course, are all ancient and keep getting re-released as new allegations over and over again. That's what we heard again last week. And, of course, in the history of this, I went back and I discovered the allegations originate in ages-old gossip columns and, and tabloid press stories, usually in the entertainment sections, not in the news sections, if they have any. 
Again, you know, things like Hollywood Interrupted, Hollywood Elsewhere, The National Enquirer, TMZ, ET Online, Rumor Fix, Showbiz 411, Huffington Post, People Magazine, a lot of them originated in those original publications. Not in a, not in a court, not in a place where a charge was laid or anything of that nature. The stories, when originally released, often appeared as exclusives in many of the tabloids. And, of course, as we revealed on past shows, many of those stories were paid for by the tabloids. Some almost on the spot, almost as if they were made up, but you have to listen to the details of that. And, of course, uh, they released the, the timing of all these old stories during Cosby's comedy tour, which was orchestrated by a whole host of interest groups, feminists, um, Gloria Allred at the head of the charge in uh, feminist in the U.S. And of course their objective was to insist that we and society and the police that we have to take the allegations of sexual assault quote more seriously which was their euphemism that we permit libel and slander in public without any co- consequences for the people doing the libeling and slandering citing the court of public opinion as the proper pr- place to adjudicate such matters. And, of course, there's also an objective, which just blows me away, of assuming guilt before innocence and insisting that the accused must prove his innocence before the accuser has to prove or demonstrate her allegation. Now, and then there was, of course, the reliance on the numbers game. You know, know, I've always heard that statement, uh, well, 30 women can't be wrong. Well, that really got me going. I said, is that possible? And, yeah, they can be. <laughs> At least they can have 30, 30 different shades of the same story. If any of these uh, alleges had a valid claim of some sort, why would they choose to associate with some of the very clearly dubious allegations? You know, it only takes one valid claim to prove a criminal act. And finally, but for today's purposes, perhaps the most significant factor to keep in mind, and I discussed this in greater detail as well in our previous broadcasts, and that is that Cosby has become a political target because of his conservative viewpoints. He was quoted in the past as, you know, the black community has to get its act together, uh, criticized some comedians. He said they shouldn't swear and curse so much in their acts. And You know, those using these allegations against Cosby to personally harm his reputation or further their own political causes have actually gone to the point where they're inciting what I would call mob behavior, you know, the very uh, uncivilized form of trying, convicting, and punishing an individual without due process, and even by treating due process with contempt. Now, I'm, again, just to put it on the record again, which I did before, I'm not defending any of the actions of which he has been accused. And I want to say from the outset that it's okay to hate the alleged crime if it did indeed happen. It's okay to hate sexual assault in any form it may take place. But an allegation of any crime, or even a thousand allegations, is not evidence in and of itself. Nor should we permit ourselves to believe that. How many people does it take to to convict an accused criminal? Just one. The one with the evidence to support their allegation. What's not okay is to toss these allegations into the so-called court of public opinion in a forum in which proof has no place, evidence is non-existent, and where mob rules based on one's own biases and prejudice uh, determine the outcome. In a real court, you know, a real court is a place of justice in which a decision of guilt or innocence is arrived at in an objective way. At least I thought that until what happened (laughs) in the recent weeks. And, of course, Bill Cosby chose most through that whole period to remain personally silent, much to the the frustration of many people, would only speak through his lawyer on the matter. But I think that was the 
rational and proper course of action available to him, and I think he might have actually gotten in a bit of trouble now because one, on one or two occasions he actually decided to speak. And um, so no, no resolution would ever be possible. And, uh, you know, as I say, anything you can say and uh, uh, anything you say can and will be used against you, and that's in a real court. As with a real court, one's only defense is silence until the correct time and circumstance to speak actually arrives. Now, that's as brief and as long a summary as I can offer in the time allowed. National Post, uh, uh, July 7th, now this would just be last week, Cosby had admitted he got, got drugs to give women testified in 2005, first sexual lawsuit against him. <clears throat> now it says here, this is from the, from the Post, Cosby's lawyer, lawyers insisted the two of his accusers knew they were taking quaaludes from the comedian according to the unsealed documents. The Associated Press, which by the way is the source of this story, had gone to court to compel the release of the documents from the deposition in a sexual abuse lawsuit filed by former Temple University employee Andrea Constant. Uh, the first of a cascade of lawsuits against him. Cosby settled that lawsuit under confidential terms in 2006. Well, at least he thought they were going to be confidential, and I don't know what value that judgment can possibly be regarded considering what's happened since. Now, Cosby giving sworn testimony in the lawsuit, um, you know, he basically answered yes when he said, when you got the quaaludes, was it in your mind that you were going to use these quaaludes for young women that you wanted to have sex with? And he said yes. And that was on September 29, uh, 2005. Did you ever give any of these young women quaaludes without their knowledge? Asked Troyani, Troyani, the, the, the uh, lawyer for, for the plaintiff, the defendant. Although, although Troyani and her, herself, in, or himself, in the documents, voices doubt that the drugs was, was involved in the alleged assault. Uh, the two other women who testified on Constance's behalf said they knowingly had been given quaaludes, and that was a very common circumstance in many of the other stories that we investigated earlier. Um, three of the women accusing Cosby of sexually assaulting them, and this is bizarre, alleged that he defamed them when his agents said their accusations were untrue. Now, think, think about that. Just to say that it's untrue or I'm innocent, all of a sudden you're guilty of defaming them and they're dragging you in the court over that. Cosby had fought uh, the efforts to unseal the testimony with his lawyer arguing that the court would reveal, the court documents would reveal, re reveal details of Cosby's marriage, sex life, and prescription drug use. Why would he embarrass, be embarrassed by his own version of the facts, uh, Robrino, the judge, said? Well, I can think of a lot of reasons but none of them that necessarily relate to the accusations. We'll continue our conversation after this humorous bite of drama, which continues from our Big Bang Theory opener earlier today. Coming! Damn you, you rat bastard. Are you drunk? Zach was a perfectly nice guy, and then you ruined him. How did I ruin him? Because in the olden days, I never would have known you as so stupid. <laughs> Come on, he wasn't that stupid. Yes, he was. He thought you were going to blow up the moon. <laughs> okay, yeah, he's stupid. <laughs> he spent the entire night bragging about how he invented the word appetizers. <laughs> 
How is that my fault? You have destroyed my ability to tolerate idiots. Now come with me. Where are we going? We're gonna have sex! Why? I mean, okay. <laughs> What's going on? Put on your noise-canceling headphones because it's gonna get loud. <laughs> oh, not this again. Good morning, Penny. I'm making English muffins. Would you like an English muffin? Oh, thanks. I'm not hungry. FYI, my noise-canceling headphones proved ineffective last night. Yeah, sorry about that. As a native Texan, I must say I've never heard the phrase yee-haw used in quite that context. Oh, God. Oh, God. That I've heard on multiple occasions. Good morning, Leonard. Where's Penny? She returned to her apartment, I presume to shower and vomit. Not necessarily in that order. I wonder why she didn't say goodbye. Are you expecting me to offer an explanation of human behavior? I know, I just thought as an outsider you might be able to provide a fresh perspective. Oh, hey. Oh, hi. Um, I gotta run, early shift. Okay, well, I'll walk down with you. So, last night was fun, huh? Yeah, it must have been. I just threw up in my closet. Bummer. Anyway, I was thinking tonight maybe we could catch a movie. Um, yeah, tonight's not great for me. It doesn't have to be tonight. I'm free pretty much always. Leonard, last night was a mistake. When you say mistake, do you mean a fortunate mistake, like the discovery of penicillin? Sorry, I was drunk, I was lonely, I hated Zach. Can we just forget it ever happened? No, it's pretty well imprinted on my brain. Especially the whole rodeo thing. Oh, God. So that's it? Wham, bam, thank you, Leonard? Look, I said I'm sorry. Can you please let it go? How am I supposed to let it go? You used me for sex. <laughs> morning, Mrs. Gunderson. Good morning, Leonard. Or should I say... Yee-haw. Oh, hey, Leonard. I was a perfectly happy, geeky, little lonely guy. And you've ruined me. Are you drunk? Come on. We're gonna have sex and it's not gonna mean a thing. Are you out of your mind? Really starting to think there's a double standard here. Boy, double standard is an understatement. But that aside, I hope that most of you understood the significance of what just happened in that Big Bang Theory audio bite we just heard. You used me for sex, proclaims Leonard, although, you know, it was really quite the opposite, actually. So in case it may have escaped your attention because you're focused on the humor, which was great, consider the fact that in that scenario, Leonard was guilty of statutory rape. Plain and simple. Under the influence of alcohol, the capacity to consent is legally not seen as such, and worse, in Leonard's case, he himself wasn't drinking alcohol, which meant that he took advantage of Penny, and not the reverse, as he declared. I don't think that any court of law would disagree with that if Penny had pursued a case against him. 
Penny doesn't even remember what happened the night before. She doesn't remember she was drunk and lonely and that she went there for sex, but she does remember she went there for sex, but that doesn't matter. Even though she initiated the sex, she was still being legally raped by Leonard. But what if he had already been drunk himself? when drunk Penny initiated the sexual encounter. Then technically, I suppose, and we've been through this loop before, both of them would have been guilty of statutory rape, but of course, where can you go with that? It's not so unlike many of the various allegers' claims against Cosby. I even cited several observations made by the very women accusing Cosby of, of whatever, they rarely use the word rape, that Cosby did not drink or partake in a lot of the drugs he used himself. Uh, though I noticed there was a recent uh, reference to Cosby's prescription drugs uh, use. I don't know if that suggests anything with regard to that or not. But I begin to wonder if that's why the complainants went to the trouble to mention that Cosby himself was not drunk or stoned. I can only speculate about that. Now replace the word alcohol with quaaludes, and what's really the difference? In the situation between Penny, between Penny and Leonard, or between Cosby and many of his accusers, whose stories were very much along the lines of what we just heard, and I don't see much difference based on the details of those reports. And now, there's no doubt in my mind that Bill Cosby led a very active and varied sexual uh, sex life with uh, many partners, relative to most people, perhaps. That was clear from the facts behind the various allegations that were not in dispute. But none of that is criminal. The fundamental issue, of course, has come to be known as affirmative consent versus the real definition of consent, all of which was part of our previous coverage on this. We certainly have a double standard when it comes to alcohol. You know, A drunk driver is no longer able to say in a court of law that he wasn't responsible for his actions because he wasn't aware of his actions due to his drunkenness. Yet a drunk woman can use that as a defense. Uh, the argument that she was not responsible for having sex with, uh, with someone because she was drunk. But current attempts at amending the definition of consent are going in two different directions at once, creating a subjectivity in the law that I don't think can survive any test of reason. Affirmative consent is not about consent, but about a forced verbal communication. While drinking alcohol negates legal consent from the outset, but being drunk at the time of an accident you caused still means you consented to drive when you got into the vehicle. So one question that needs consistent resolution on the issue of alcohol anyway is does, does consent or does not consent occur before you start drinking in both circumstances or afterwards? Now, William Moyer um, from the Washington Post, as we reprinted in the National Post, uh, had an article in the paper on July 8th, How Cosby's Moralizing Came Back to Haunt Him. And he, write, and he writes that Bill Cosby etched his legacy in stone with a speech in 2004 that took uh, black parents to task. It became famous as the pound cake speech for this passage. Looking at the incarcerated, these are not political criminals, said Cosby. These are people going around stealing Coca-Cola, people getting shot in the back of the head over a piece of pound cake. Then we all run out and we're outraged. The cops shouldn't have shot him. What the hell was he doing with that pound cake in his hand? While many lauded Cosby for tackling a delicate subject so directly, it wasn't long before the trouble began. Critics lambasted his conservative prescriptions for black America. After the accusations mounted over the past year, which have nothing to do with this, of course, the pound cake speech was seized upon as an example of gross hypocrisy. I wanted a piece of pound cake just as bad as anyone else, Cosby went on, and I looked at it and I had no money. And something called parenting said, if you get caught with it, you're going to embarrass your mother, not you're going to get your butt kicked. No, you're going to embarrass your mother. You're going to embarrass your family. 
It was a nice, end quote, it was a nice piece of rhetoric, continues the writer, one that earned Cosby praise in some quarters and criticisms in others. Pound cake left no small mark. Books were written about it. It was discussed in the pages of the Harvard Educational Review, etc., etc. And, of course, uh, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates is quoted in the Atlantic magazine in 2008. Cosby often pitched the rhetoric of personal responsibility against the legitimate claims of American citizens for their rights. He chides activists for pushing to reform the criminal justice system despite solid evidence that the criminal justice system needs reform. I think he's mixing apples and oranges with marshmallows and tangerines in that case. But the article continues... His historical amnesia, his assertion that many of the problems that pervade black America are of a recent vintage is simply wrong as his contention that that today's young African Americans are somehow weaker and that they've dropped the ball. And one of the major issues with respect to the release of previous court documents uh, is Cosby's right to privacy, what Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis called the right to be let alone. Cosby, after all, is not a public figure in the sense that President Barack Obama is. The comedian does not surrender his privacy rights at the doorstep of a courthouse, as Rob Reno wrote. But he added, This case, however, is not about the defendant's status as a public person by virtue of the exercise of his trade as televised or comedic personality, which, by the way, is exactly the opposite argument made by the court of public opinion and most of the complainants. Rather, the defendant has donned the mantle of public moralist and mounted the proverbial electronic or print soapbox to volunteer his views on, among other things, child-rearing, family life, education, and crime. The judge continued, to the extent that the defendant has freely entered the public square and thrust himself into the vortex of these public issues, he has voluntarily narrowed the zone of privacy that he is entitled to claim. In his memorandum, Judge Eduardo Robrino said the speech and Cosby's general posture as a public moralist made the deposition a legitimate subject of, get this, public interest, sufficient to override Cosby's objection to its disclosure. The deposition was made public largely because Cosby crowned himself a moral crusader, end quote. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm simply stunned by what I just read. It's outrageous and it's obscene. Cosby, first of all, didn't crown himself a moral crusader any more than Mark Emery crowned himself the Prince of Pot. That was done by the National Enquirer. And uh, it was also the tabloids that labeled Cosby the moral crusader. And the tabloids figure greatly into this attack on Cosby as we went into great detail on our past excursions into this issue. So I guess that means that someone like me or Robert Vaughn or anyone else who has co-hosted or appeared on this show are expected to be perfect people, and if not, then we have no right to privacy uh, as to our sex lives and health issues. You know, this is frightening stuff. I find Judge uh, Rabrino's justifications, Cosby's political opinions, for opening the court files of an already settled case for nothing more than the public interest that's unconscionable. It's immoral. It's, it's downright injustice in the nth degree. And then finally, there's uh, July 9th uh, by Mary Claire Dale, National Post, the story of Cosby's Canadian ac- accuser. And this is, of course, um, about Andrea Constad. And um, she begins, Bill Cosby has painted many of his accusers as star-struck gold diggers, aspiring models and actresses trying to shake him down, which, by the way, is exactly what I myself concluded, not from his assertions, but from their own printed and recorded allegations, which, by the way, no one in the media cares to comment on. Now, of course, she's the one that was in that, that lawsuit that was settled, 
and uh, it says um, Constant had met Cosby in 2002, socialized with him at dinner parties and sometimes alone, sometimes at restaurants. According to her account, Constant described how stressed she was about a career decision, which would imply that she was another star-struck person aspiring for some other career, from being a former college athlete and uh, ex-college staffer. What was she actually at the time of meeting Cosby? And why does the writer of this article suggest that Constant stands out among the other star-struck gold diggers? You know... Constant was not in show business and had not been exposed to the sex and drug scene in Hollywood, she writes. Well, at least she admits that there was a sex and drug scene in Hollywood, which describes the kind of environment in which many of the other accusers were part of and participated in, at least according to their own testimonies and stories sold to various tabloids. And the, and the article reads, And Cosby gave her three pills to help her relax. She thought they were herbal sub- supplements. She said she woke up the next morning sore with clothes askew and a vague memory of being fondled. Now, I'd really like to know what kind of herbal supplements taken in tablet form would offer the kind of relaxation that was being discussed here, because I bet you there'd be a lot of demand for that stuff. Now, Cosby, in his deposition, called any sexual encounter consensual and said he fed her a muffin and tea before she left, and she said she left on her own. I don't want to talk about Cosby, Constance told a Toronto Sun reporter this week. It doesn't define me. It's in the past. I have a whole other life, and I'm happy. And, uh, boy, you bet you are. You got your money, and you got no further personal interest in this. And and I was thinking, what about Constance's right to privacy? Isn't that also in jeopardy by opening the court files to the media? Or is she not in jeopardy because she doesn't express her political views in public? I don't get it. Only the political masters know for sure. You know, I don't think Bill Cosby needs a lawyer. I think he, he needs a philosopher. But that's all about Cosby today. When we return on the other side of our break, I'll be, it'll be a complete change in theme and topic, all about space, time, the speed of light, the universe, and yes, even time travel itself, a concept that seems a little in need of some clarification with regard to the science, but which offers an infinite number of imaginative possibilities in the field of science fiction, ethics, and the law of causality. For now, I'm going to give the last word on the Cosby tragedy to someone I have come to greatly respect for sticking to her principles on this situation, none other than Whoopi Goldberg, whose comments on The View last week apparently raised the ire of those committed to the idea of guilty until proven innocent. Her words demonstrate the very wisdom of Star Trek's Guinan herself. Yesterday we talked about Cosby, and I said what I've always said, innocent until proven guilty in the United States of America, because that's our law. Uh, so people have been coming after me saying they're going to snatch my family. They're going to come. Up. It's like being Frankenstein. People coming after you with the fire and they're going to burn you. Well, here's the deal. This is the view. And that was my opinion. And not any of you threatening me or telling me you're coming after because you don't like what I said is going to change the fact that no one has convicted him. He has not been arrested. And the bottom line is that's the law. Innocent until proven guilty. And if you're the mother of a son, if you're the mother of a son who gets accused, you want to keep innocent until proven guilty. Just ask, just wait, 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 wait. Just ask the parents of the boys of the Duke lacrosse team. Remember that? We raked them across the, the coals, burned them at the stake, took away every opportunity they had of school, they were done. And it turns out it wasn't true. So I think we all, at UVA, same thing. We all have a very important role to play when it comes to abuse and rape. We all have to demand that 
if it's true, the person is taken to the nth degree of the world and punished. No one here thinks rape is good. No one here thinks rapists are fun. Nobody here thinks rape or hates women or any of that. So don't come after me like that because I'm sick of this bull. Here's the bottom line for me. It's my opinion. And the American courts agree with me because still, he has not been taken to jail or tried or on anything. So back off me. How'd it go? You ever try explaining to your parents why your DNA makes you the only candidate for a time jump? And they understand you're never coming back. I reminded them that Adolf Hitler was responsible for the deaths of 60 million people. Fathers, mothers, children. And that only I can stop that from ever happening. Remember, the real housekeeper arrives on the 915 train April 30th. That gives you 48 hours. That's all I need. Six, we don't believe five, in you. All right, Fraulein. Just feeling a little ill. I am looking for Sopama N. Postad 219. Yes. I am here to see Herr Hitler. I am Alois Hitler. Herr Hitler. I am Marta Eichelmann. So no housekeeper. And this is the pride and joy of my household. My son. Adolf. What if you had a chance to go back in time and save millions of lives by killing one man? Andrea Collins will soon discover this mission to be more difficult than she ever imagined as she takes a one-way trip into the Twilight Zone. <laughs> we'll hear more about Andrea Collins' one-way trip into the Twilight Zone a little later in the show. But what we just heard is pretty much the theme of an interesting muse in the pages of the National Post this past May 23rd headed The Moral of the Story, National, uh, May 23rd, on the ethics and science fiction of preventative time travel. And subheading, more men than women were willing to commit murder, although in this Twilight Zone example, we had a, a woman in that position. And the article basically, the, the essence of it reads as follows. You're given a time machine. What's the first thing you do? If your idea is to travel back in time to assassinate Adolf Hitler, you are not alone. It's such a common impulse that it has become a trope that everyone kills Hitler on their first trip. 
a group of researchers recently looked at the responses from more than 6,000 subjects in trying to determine how people resolve moral dilemmas. One scenario asked whether people uh, would travel into the 1920s and kill Hitler before Mein Kampf, before he had a mass following, and long before he put his genocidal plans into practice. As the researchers discovered, more men than women were willing to commit this act if it meant forestalling war and massacre. Women, however, were more likely to feel conflicted over what to do, and having to commit murder was more likely to convince them to let Hitler live. Whether you feel comfortable killing an innocent person to save many other lives depends on your own moral code, and whether you take a deontological or utilitarian view, uh, uh, and what period, sorry, that should be the end of that sentence. Deontology, the most, most famously championed by German philosopher Immanuel Kant, holds that actions are either right or wrong by themselves, irrespective of their consequences. As such, committing murder is always a moral crime, even if your victim is history's greatest monster. Utilitarians, though, would, would contend that the lives of millions of Hitler's victims easily outweigh this, end quote. Now, I think uh, the great misunderstanding from the outset of all the kill Hitler fantasies is the belief that Hitler alone was responsible for what happened in fascist Germany, of course, and nothing could be further from the truth. The conditions in Germany were caused by the philosophy that the German people were following, and had the head of the Third Reich not been Hitler, it would have been someone very much like him. Other than himself and his mistress in an act of murder-suicide, Hitler never actually personally killed anyone. That was all done by others, people following orders in a complete moral vacuum, which was created by the philosophies that they followed. I mean, it would have been more logical to go back in time and kill the philosophers, <laughs> like Immanuel Kant, Hegel, and all the others who created the moral climate that made it all possible. But of course, uh, that's not even in the cards here. But the article continues. Ethical questions aside, there's still plenty else to worry about. As countless science fiction works have explored, time travel is fraught with risks. You, the daring time traveler, could kill Hitler only to allow an even worse person to assume control of the Third Reich. And, it, and they acknowledge Germany in the 1920s was a fractured society in a deep economic depression and rife with radicals. So it's not inconceivable that Hitler's rise prevented a more efficient megalomaniac from coming to power and actually winning the Second World War, thereby changing the whole course of history for the worse. And they had gave a whole bunch of other interesting ones, or you know, maybe even Hitler would just simply overpower you and steal your time machine, although in the case of the Twilight Zone, she didn't go back in a machine. She went back on her own, couldn't be returned. And uh, the biggest hurdle to overcome, uh, he writes, would be the paradoxes inherent in changing the past. Perhaps you've heard of the grandfather paradox, which posits that going back in time to kill your own grandfather would prevent your own birth, thereby making it impossible for you to kill your grandfather. But there's also a killing Hitler paradox, in which your decision to snuff out little Adolf's life in the crib would erase your own motivation for traveling back in time to kill him. See, so if you change the future, you can't come back from that future to change it again. <laughs> it's a complete... Uh, issue. And of course you've heard of the butterfly effect, that's another one the author brings up here. And uh, you might be successful killing Hitler, but on your way back, you know, you step on a butterfly or some little uh, whatever, and you might refer, re you know, return to find nothing but a barren wasteland, or because you stepped on a beetle on your way to Hitler's house, <laughs> you know. So um, he concludes, uh, it's obvious why killing 
one of the greatest mass murderers in history is appealing. It seems so simple, but actually doing so would open a whole can of ethical, philosophical, and temporal worms. End quote. Well, you know, when it comes to time travel, aren't we all really already traveling through time? I mean, even the time it took me to ask that question was probably around five seconds, so since I began the question through the end of that question, uh, we traveled five seconds in time, but it seems to me that that's about the only kind of time travel that will ever be open to us, given what we know, not what we don't know, about the nature of the universe, which we'll be taking a look at in a few moments. Now, as we continue the time travel story begun in our previous audio bite, which, by the way, is from uh, the Twilight Zone series, the 2002 series, uh, hosted by Forrest Whitaker. And um, it's from the first season. It starred Catherine Hagel as Andrea Collins and James Remar as Adolf Hitler's father. What an excellent episode it was, too. Um, the sets were awesome. The acting was great. But as we continue the time travel story, we now find the time traveler, Andrea Collins, posing as one of the senior Hitler's new, new housekeepers in uh, Braunau, Austria, with a pillow in her hand, leaning over the baby crib of the still infant Adolf Hitler, about to fulfill her mission, to kill Adolf Hitler in the hope of preventing World War II and the Holocaust that accompanied it. doing in my son's room? Oh, you startled me. Frau Hitler, forgive me, I am not Icon, the new housekeeper. I was just checking on the child. I just wanted to make him more comfortable. Silly girl, babies do not need pillows. Ah, oh, I was not thinking, Frau Hitler. You can call me Clara. There's a key. Excuse me? There's a key. It's a key! Wait, wait. Never forget the key. It keeps out the evil spirits. Evil spirits, yes. Of course. He's so beautiful. So innocent. I must protect him. Sometimes the spirits reach the children and lead them astray. I will not let that happen to my son. He is my miracle. You, you hold him. I am not allowed. I don't think I could go on living. I should get a bed. You're right. Neither of us should be here. I've never been to confession before, but I need to speak to someone. God hears the prayers of all, my child. But if I told you there was someone in this town who would one day be responsible for the death of 60 million people? I would say that no one can know the future. Trust me, Father. 
he will drive mankind towards hell on earth. But if even what you said were true, what could possibly be done about it? I do not see. I have to kill him. Give me the strength to do what I have to do. Only God has the right to take a life. You have to leave here. Leave? Take the baby and go. Leave this, this house, this country. But my dear, I cannot leave. This is my home. You love your son, do you not? With all my heart. Then this is your chance to save him. Get him away from here. Away from his father. Don't be ridiculous. Where would I go? France, England, America. But my husband said they are the enemies of the Aryan people. I know this sounds crazy, but, but unless you leave here, millions of people are going to die. Perhaps my tonic will calm you. You're in a good mood. I need a favor, Martha. Herr Hitler asked me to go to town with him. Can you take care of the baby tonight? Of course. Please, be extra careful around the child. He would kill me if anything happened to his son. You're afraid of him. Is that why you let him into your bed? So, there's the new addition to the family. I'm probably asleep. I will have the nanny bring him down. Christina! Yeah, bitte, Herr Hitler. Where's my son? Marta is with him. I do not trust the new housekeeper with the baby. She was acting very peculiar today. Bring the boy down when we have finished dining, Christina, and uh, ask Fräulein Eichelmann to meet me in my study later. Baby. Chief Inspector, allow me to present my son, Adolf Hitler. He is a beautiful child, fine example of Aryan breeding. Precious little Adolf, my angel. Hmm? A moment of silence for Andrea Collins. She sacrificed her life for the good of mankind, but she also created the very monster she sought to destroy. History can never be changed, not even in the twilight zone. <laughs> of course, when the maid said she was just changing the baby, she meant it literally. I won't be a total spoiler, and so shall refrain from revealing just how she changed the baby, 
or who that baby was. But here's a question. Why are time and space the same thing? That was the question posed in, in a book I've discussed before on the show called Back to School for Grown-Ups, which gives quick summaries and explanations to a host of questions that plague mankind. And of course, even the question as phrased already suggests that time travel separated from space travel can't be possible simply on the grounds that time and space are the same thing. Time travel fantasies assume that they are not the same thing. They assume that you can mix a different space with a different time. But the article, or the, the book, suggests and, and, and quotes here, in a vacuum, light always travels at the same speed regardless of the observer. The implications of this are enormous. Time itself slows. As one approaches the speed of light, or to put it another way, the faster an object moves through space, the more slowly it moves through time. This has been demonstrated by flying highly accurate atomic clocks around the world at high speed and showing that they register the passage of less time than clocks on the ground. The spatial dimensions of an object are also relative to its speed, and the faster something travels, the smaller it becomes in the direction of motion. Now, end quote. But I'm thinking, doesn't the very use of two different words, space and time, also demonstrate that space and time are not the same thing? I mean, how can you go faster and slower through something that you call the same thing simultaneously? I have a lot of problem with the, the language that's used in describing many of these concepts. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, I accept that space and time are two elements of the same phenomenon, even here on the ground. And, uh, you know, I recall in a past show quoting philosopher John McMurray, who was pointing out that in common language, we omit the time factor when we talk about getting from here to there. To accurately and precisely say, I'm going from here to there, would be to say, I'm going from here now to there then. But we don't, we don't talk like that. But, you know, it got me thinking, suppose that two people decided to race each other on foot from one end of a city block to another. Runner A gets there and half the time is runner B. Has the winner moved through space-time at a different rate relative to the loser? I think yes, though the difference would be immeasurable on so small a scale, relative to the speed of light, certainly. The distance for both runners was the same, the length of the city block, but if the one runner is at the finishing line while the other is at the middle of the block, they still occupy different spaces, and yes, exist in different times relative to each other, although the variable would be so small on the scale suggested as to be immeasurable. To the runner in the middle of the block, the winner at the end of the block is there then, whereas he or she is at the here and now. And more interesting, from the point of the view of the winner at the finish line, the same principle applies relative to the other racer behind him. I think we have to make a distinction or add a dimension, if you prefer, and that would be about distance. In fact, I'm beginning to believe in this context distance may be illusionary. Not in fact, but in terms of observing it from a fixed point in space-time. In terms of experiencing distance, uh, well, 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 then we're back to space-time. Distance is merely the measurement of space-time and cannot be observed as a separate entity. We measure the spatial dimension of distance in terms of the length of the city block, say, or miles or kilometers or light-years, and we measure the time dimensions in terms of seconds, minutes, and hours between two points in what we call space-time. And then the, the book continues, if it were possible for an object to travel at the speed of light, it would shrink to nothing, which is why the speed of light is the absolute speed limit. And I'm thinking, is that an actual fact or just relative to the observer? Doesn't the same thing happen when the runner who's beating you in a race gets so far ahead of you that he appears to be a lot smaller than when he's standing beside you? I'm not sure if that's just what we're dealing with there. 
And of course, they speak of terms like the fabric of space-time. Um, according to Hubble's law, a galaxy is twice as far away from us as another is moving away at twice uh, the rate. If this is true, then surely there must be a distance at which galaxies are moving away from us faster than the speed of light. But isn't this contrary to Einstein's theory? In fact, it's not a contradiction. It's the space-time fabric itself that is expanding, and this expansion can take place at a rate that increases the distance between us and another galaxy faster than the speed of light. Of course, such galaxies are beyond the observable horizon because light from them will never reach us." End quote. Well, you know, I have a lot of problems with that. I don't know about the term fabric. I don't think that's right. I mean, fabric, I think of hemp, denim, silk. I don't know. Inquiring minds need to know. And what is it we're supposed to be expanding into? Isn't time and space already everything that exists? Or is that a concept separate from the word universe? Uh, you know, which means everything that exists. But they do ask the question, uh, where is the limit of the universe? And I just love their answer to this. Quote, what is absolutely known for certain about the limit of the universe is, get this, precisely nothing. <laughs> well, that certainly helps explain why I haven't been able to find the answer. But the book continues that the question's a very old one, and modern physics, astronomy, cosmology, and math are all making it possible to investigate a range of fascinating theories. Some are truly mind-boggling. Searching for images to help us visualize what's happening, scientists have come up with the example of an inflating balloon, but that's problematic. A balloon has a limit that separates the air from the inside and the outside, but there's nothing outside the universe. That doesn't mean that there is nothing in that realm beyond our universe. It means that the phrase, beyond our universe, is meaningless. And I'm thinking, wow, that's epistemology to the rescue. A stunning and, I think, accurate observation. And they state the idea of a limit in the sense of a boundary supposes that there's an outside and inside to be separated, but there is no outside, so there can be no boundary. Now, if that wasn't enough to digest, <laughs> they write, you, we know that the universe has existed for 13.7 billion years, and we know that the fastest anything can travel is the speed of light, so you would assume the width of the universe would be 13.7 billion years, right? But no. And they say there's two things wrong with that. First, there's no central point from which the radius of the universe can be measured because the Big Bang was not like a bomb going off at a point in space. And second, as we learned when discussing space and time, matter is not moving through space in this expanding universe. Space itself is expanding, and it can do so at a speed that moves galaxies apart faster than the speed of light. The latest estimate for the distance across the universe is 156 billion light years and it was discovered that the rate of expansion is increasing. And then they get into the whole issue of dark matter, etc., etc. And, uh, you know, and then they say, when was the Big Bang? According to the theory of 13.7 billion years ago, uh, there was nothing anywhere. There wasn't even a somewhere for anything to be. Well, if that's the case, then my thinking is there was no 13.7 billion years ago. Since time and space are the same thing, there was no time. So what relevance does, do these measurements have to anything, and especially if the universe expands at an accelerating rate. And they say there was a singularity, an infinitely dense something that contained everything. I mean, this is nonsense. <laughs> infinitely dense? Really? Infinite is only a potential, a mathematical construct, construct based on the idea that you can always add one to a number and get a bigger number. On to infinity. However, even in the math example, the infinities never reached and can never be attained. Infinities do not exist, in fact. 
Everything that exists is finite, including the universe itself, even though it includes, by definition, everything that exists. And so you can see, they say scientists remain a little vague about what happened in the first 10,000 trillionth of a second. Well, I would say so. It's kind of hard <laughs> to, to, to even try to imagine all of this. And of course, all of this stands in stark contrast to the steady state theory of the universe, which was, is my favorite view of the whole issue. And, you know, if there was a if there was at one time nothing, then even that so-called nothingness was something, just not the something that we know today. And I'm more inclined to conclude that the nothingness of which scientists speak when referring to the period that preceded the Big Bang is the nothingness that accompanies a complete lack of knowledge or evidence we have of that period. Uh, if the Big Bang occurred 13.7 billion years ago, then what was going on 14 or 15 billion years ago, which would mean a me meaningless measurement in, given a complete absence of time and space. So nothing that we know about relating exclusively to our knowledge and not to existence itself. And so I guess that's it for today, and that, that's our final demonstration of this principle. I must now announce that we've run out of space-time for today. So given that time travel is sheer fantasy and that space may be expanding at an accelerating rate, has this whole discussion just been a waste of space-time? <laughs> I do have to make one final observation. It sure saves a lot of time just to say time instead of space-time. So I hope your space-time was well spent, informative, and entertaining, and we all, as we all travel through space-time into the future at the same rate, we'll lock our coordinates for the same space-time next week when we continue our journey through space-time together in the right direction. Until then, and there, be right, stay right, do act right, and think right, and be right back here, or somewhere, I don't know. See you then. to black and white under the bedclothes everything will be alright roommates agree that Friday nights shall be reserved for watching Joss Whedon's brilliant new series Firefly <laughs> does that really need to be in the agreement? We might as well settle it now it's going to be on for years <laughs> initial here alright that's television and movies Section 9, miscellany. <clears throat> and next, if either of us ever invents time travel, we agree our first stop will be this meeting today in precisely five seconds. <laughs> well, that's disappointing. <laughs>